Hey, Village Church, Pastor Michael here. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week's sermon is from 2 Samuel chapter 24. This is the last chapter in the book of 2 Samuel and the second to last message on our series on King David. This week's message is entitled, I Will Have Your Heart. And this message is a beautiful reminder that God will relentlessly pursue you and not let anything stand between you and him. Remember, God is not done with you yet. Open up your Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 24, 2 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, I think God has a funny habit in my life of taking away things that are very important to me if they compete with him. That constantly in my life, back from the time of high school when I first really started to take my relationship with God seriously, that when something stood between me and him, it's almost like he has this habit of just reaching into my life, pulling it out, and showing me, this is getting in the way. Michael, I want your whole heart, not half your heart. And if you're going to let this get between us, then I'm going to take it out. So do you guys remember um, these crazy little things called compact discs? Anybody? Anybody? You remember you'd go to your car and like there wasn't some magical thing called Bluetooth that like invisibly sent music to your speakers and, and like you had to take the CD out of a case and put it in and then uh, went in. And, remember that? Like crazy experience. I just, uh, you remember when you had like walls of CDs, right? Um, and then you like before you got in the car, you had to go to your collection and you had to think to yourself, now some of you still have CDs, the point is to make you feel a little awkward at this point, okay? I get that. But you remember when you had to go think, what do I want to listen to today? And I got a one-hour car ride that's enough for like, you know, two good CDs, and so you had to go get your CDs and then bring them, and then one was done, you had to pull it out and then put it back in. It was a big mess. And so I had like three to four hundred CDs in my CD binder, and that binder went in my car everywhere. Anybody remember the CD binders, right? Right? And uh, I made sure that I just, I, I was so proud of that. People would get in my car and say, check out my CD binder. I'm awesome. And uh, it was a true statement. But here's the deal. I loved music more than I loved God. I spent tens of thousands of dollars, not just on CDs, back in the day cassettes, but not just on CDs, on guitars and amplifiers and pedals. At one time, I, I owned seven guitars, which Unless you're a professional musician, no high school student should have seven guitars. And I just spent my money. I had a job, so I could just spend money. And, and uh, so I, I remember just sitting back and saying, man, I love music. And God, it was so clear to me, you love music way more than you love me. So on my walls, on my ceilings, every single square inch of my wall and my ceiling was filled with posters of musicians and everything you could possibly imagine. I mean, it was a full immersion environment because what was my God? Music. Loved it way more than God, and there's this little still voice in my heart that said, I'm going to take this away from you if you don't give it up or repent, and I didn't. And So one day I go into my friend's house. I lock my car door because when you have something valuable in the car, you do what? You lock it. So I locked it because my CDs, my precious was in there. I walked into the house. I got something. I came back, and they're gone. And can I just tell you, I went into a panic. Like this was one of my greatest sources of pride 
thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of music, and what would I do in the car? Listen to the radio? Oh my goodness. And so I remember sitting there and thinking, I went into a panic. I have to get every one of these back. So this is before text messaging and mass text, and I remember I was on AOL Instant Messenger, and I'm like, hey, buddies, you know? And then I had to call them on their landline moment. Hey, hey, Jimmy's mom, can I talk to Jimmy? You know, like, remember those days? Thank God those are over. Um, Anyway, so like I would... I would go and, and I hunted down for a week or two and I would go to my friend's house and be like, I gotta burn this city and burn this city. And then I found a whole bunch of CDs I didn't own before and I burned even more. And I went to Best Buy, remember that place? And I went to Best Buy and I bought 200 blank CDs. And anyway, so I made, and I built up my binder and it wasn't, I don't even know, it wasn't a long time later where the same thing happened. I go into someone's house, I come back out and all my CDs are gone. And I remember the Lord at that moment was like so clear in my head. It's like, Michael, you love your music more than you love me. You love your music more than you love me. And I will take away from you anything that gets in the way. And this has been God's MO with me, I think, my whole life, is anything that I find more important, he tends to rip from me. And I could give you illustration after illustration, but this is the story of my life. And so I want to ask you a question. There are things that stand between you and God, and I want you to just ponder your own life as you hear these. What if nothing stood between you and God? What if nothing hindered you from opening up the word of God every single morning? What if that thing that is so important to you that it gets in the way of you and God and spending time, what if that wasn't there? What, what might look different in your life? What if your time on Facebook and watching TV no longer got in the way of you pursuing God in regular one-on-one prayer? What if those things that stand between you and God and giving him your best and growing with him in intimacy and growing your relationship with him and sitting at his feet, what if all the things that compete with your affections for God, what if they just were gone? What if you just, what if you, what if you just stood before the Lord and you studied his word and you prayed and you sought his face? What if your busy schedule, that thing that is so important, that we have so much identity in, didn't stand between you and serving? What if your fear of rejection no longer hindered you from telling people kindly and lovingly and wisely about the gospel of Jesus Christ? There are so many things that stand between us and God, and I just want to share with you a lesson from David. I want to tell it to you right now. God will eradicate anything that stands in the way between you and him. He loves you so much. He wants intimacy and relationship with you and union with you and dialogue with you and connection with you. He wants to be your God and he wants nothing to stand between you and him. So much so that if he finds something, he may not do it right away, but in due time, at the right moment, to make the point he needs to make in your life, he will rip it out. And as we've said with David week after week after week, repent now before he has to intervene and rip it out of your life because it hurts a lot worse when he has to enter in and rip it out. 2 Samuel 24, here's the, the context that we're finding ourselves in. Second to last sermon in the life of David. Uh, David is now an old man. He is getting ready to hand off the kingdom to his son Solomon. And there seems to be a general peace in the land. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of war, a lot of conflict. And you look at your notes, and you'll see in point number one, uh, God will have David's heart at any cost. And what I've learned with David and what we see here is that God will make David's life and your life very difficult to recapture your whole heart. That God will not hesitate to make your life very difficult if it means he can recapture your heart. Anyone who's ever gone through that say amen. 
Yep, half of you said yes. The other half, he's about to make your life very difficult. 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. This means literally that God's nostrils flared. His face got red. This is the word for kindling anger. And God incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So I want you to notice a couple things here. Um, God is inciting David against. Is this positive or negative? Negative, right? So God is putting David in a position to do something that is going to actually harm the people of Israel. Another observation. Look at the first word in this sentence. What's that word? Again. So whatever is about to happen, whatever event is going to occur, um, this has happened time and time and time and time again. This is apparently a repeated process, and I think this is just so important um, that you understand something very, very simple. That every single time God, quote, burns with anger towards Israel, it is for one thing. It is when they are willfully sinning against God. So we don't know, we have no idea why specifically God is angry at Israel in this, in this verse, but here's what we do know. We do know that 100% of the time throughout the Old Testament, that every time God is ever angry with them, it is because they are willingly, willfully sinning against God, and they're not stopping or repenting. And so what made God so angry? We have no idea. There's another question I think that comes up in this, in this one verse, and that is this. Did God tell David to sin? So God tells David or incites David to go take a census. And what you're going to find out as you read in this text is that the census is actually a sinful thing. Now, you may not know this, but oftentimes in the Old Testament, there's a story, and there's another book of the Bible that tells the exact same story, but from a different perspective. And in the book of First Chronicles chapter 21, the story that we're in this morning is told there, but from a different perspective. Now, in Second Samuel, who is the one inciting David? It's God, right? Listen to what the same story told from the perspective of 1 Chronicles says. Then Satan stood against God, or stood against Israel, I'm sorry, and incited David to number Israel. So in 2 Samuel, who's inciting David? God. In, in 1 Chronicles, who's inciting David? Satan. And that the end is the same. He's inciting them to number Israel. So at this point, you should step up, walk out, and say the Bible's contradictory and untrustworthy, and this is total foolishness. Why are we even here? That's obviously not the point. That's a lie. Um, the point here is very simple, um, is that God is not necessarily as simple, maybe, as we want to make him, that there might be a bit more complexity going on as God himself interacts with the physical realm and the spiritual realm. And, and let me just break it down for you so you don't have to wonder about this as we get to the meat of the text. Here's what's clear. God is instigating the census. He's instigating the sin because he wants to judge and punish Israel for their willful disobedience. But Satan is the one who executes the temptation. Uh, And David is the one who actually takes the bait and chooses to sin. So when David sins, can he blame Satan? No. When David sins, can he blame God? No. This is from David's heart, and God has set up circumstances to expose what is really going on in David's heart. What's actually kind of weird about this is there seems to be, not abnormal in Scripture, a conversation between God and Satan where God says, Satan, come here. Incite him. 
put this before him. And what you see here in scripture is that God uses Satan to execute judgment on nations. That Satan is God's tool. God is an orchestrator and he can use any means that he wants to get done whatever he wants to get done. We'll go to verse two. So the king, David, said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. So there are three reasons a king would want to take a census. Number one, to get more taxes. I know Ville Church loves taxes. Can I get an amen? Yeah? Anybody? Anybody? Oh, you know? All right, fine. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I got another amen back there. Uh, number two, to give the king a sense of security. Look how many people I have. Look how many warriors I have. Like, we're all good because nobody can defeat my army because we're so big. And the third reason is to give the king a reason to boast. Look at what I have accrued. Look at what I have done. Look at the legacy that I have built. Look at the empire that I have created. I am so awesome. I am so strong. I am so smart. I am so strategic. And David, now it's starting to get to his head. What is going to stand between David and God? David's own pride. And God knows if he's going to have David's whole heart, he's going to have to go in and rip his pride out of him. Because let's be honest, the older we get, sometimes the harder it is to repent of our sins. The harder it is to see the depths of what's going on because most likely David has lived with this for many, many, many years. The secret little thing is growing bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you want to look at David in this moment. You want to say, David, so what if you have a big army and you have a heart far from God. Like David, who cares if your heart is so uh, uh, ugly and distant and prideful and yucky, uh, and who cares if you have this huge army? And at some point, um, God honestly wants to intervene in David's life and say, David, there are more important things than the size of your army, and I'm going to make sure you learn this lesson in a way you never, ever, ever, ever forget. I think God would want to look at David and say, David, the most pressing issue in your life, it is not the size of your army, it's the immorality of your people. It's the immorality of your people. Get your house in order. Get the things that concern you straight. Verse three, Joab, the, command, the, the, the king's commander of the army, said to the king, David, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of the Lord, my Lord the king, still see it. He's old, that's what he's saying. I know you're, you're not... You don't have too many years left, right? But let's talk for a minute. Why does my Lord, the king, delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So all of the leadership, they go to David and say, David, don't do this. David, the census that you're about to take, it's going to be sin. David don't, David, don't do this. And when it's a battle between David's will and the commander of the army's will, who wins? You can say David. That's fine. That's, yeah. So here's the question that you should be asking um, right now. Who cares about a census? Why is a census a big deal? Like this will, most people just fly right over your head. And a census is an enormous deal to God, so much so that he tells the Israelites in the book of Exodus exactly how and when they're allowed to give a census. I want you to listen to this because this is going to be needed information for you to understand what's happening. Exodus chapter 30, verse 11 and 12. The Lord said to Moses, when you take a census of the people of Israel, 
Then each should give a ransom for his life to the Lord. It was a half a shekel. Whether you're dirt poor or filthy rich, everybody paid the same tax. When you number them, you do this. Now why? That there may be no plague among them when you number them. So here's what David and all of his commanders in his army know. If you take a census in a way that the Lord has told you not to take it, God has promised a plague will come over the people. So is it clear? Absolutely. Did, did the law of God just go away, right? No, it still has jurisdiction over David's heart and over the nation of Israel. And Joab and the commanders are like, David, the word says, do you really want to do this? And David is basically saying, I've got this under control. I am untouchable. This is not that big of a deal. And David obviously sins in this. And then it goes on and says, so Joab and the commander of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Verse 8, go down there with me. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. God's anger was incited nine months before the census is finished. And God sends Satan to um, put David in a position to put the idea in his brain. David takes the bait and he actually has an acts a census. Nine months goes by. Now David has no idea what God is up to, does he? And God is just sitting there and he is waiting. Have you ever found yourself in a season of willful disobedience and the Lord doesn't say anything? And it just keeps going and going and going. And then you think you're free. And then all of a sudden, everything crashes. And he says, by the way, I know what's going on. By the way, I've been paying attention the whole time. And here's, I think, just a beautiful picture of God is that he is so patient and yet so purposeful. I think for so many times, we mistake his Uh, ambivalence or appeared ambivalence is appeared distance as, oh, I don't really care about your sin. It's no big deal. So God uh, gives us mercy by postponing his discipline. He gives us every opportunity to say, uh, for us to say we're sorry and to change. And we mistake that as ambivalence. We mistake that as, you don't really care what's really actually happening here. Verse 9, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000, 1.3 fighting men. At this point, what would you expect David's reaction would be? Look how secure I am. Look at my legacy. Look how great I am. Sometimes the Lord lets you go and sin and lets it take its full course so that at the very end of it, you step back and you say, ooh, that was a huge, huge mistake. Any of you ever sinned for a long time and when the sin uh, came to completion, you step back and you said, that was a massive mistake. That was a massive mistake. Here's what happens. Look at number two in your notes. I will have your whole heart despite the competition. We're going to see here is that God will take away anything that competes for your whole heart. David hears the news of the um, census. Here's what happens as soon as he hears it. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. Struck him. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now, do you remember when David sinned with Bathsheba? Did David come to God first, or did God have to confront David? God had to confront David. In his old age, he's learning something here. When you do something dumb, apologize right away, right away. And so thankfully, there's progress here. But what do you think God's going to say in this moment? 
I mean, you think God's going to look at him and say, oh, David, thank you for saying sorry. It's no big deal. Don't worry about it. I mean, I know what the word of God says. I know my law. Um, you know, and I, I did kind of overlook the whole Bathsheba Uriah thing. Like, you deserve to die. I gave you mercy. You're probably expecting that again. No big deal. Just don't worry about it. We'll just go on and everybody's going to be happy. Nobody will know the difference, despite the fact that you made a public mockery of me in front of the entire nation. It's probably not what he does. God actually does something that before this and after this, he has never done again. He looks at David. Here's what happens. David rose in the morning. Verse 11. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's here, saying, Go and say to David, thus, the Lord, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Number one, shall three years of famine come to you in the land? Number two, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Number three, or shall there be three days pestilence in the land? Now consider, decide what answer I shall return to him with who sent me. At this point, some of you may be thinking, but he said he's sorry. Like, isn't that enough? I mean, that should be good, right? A little tip for you. You can go back to the Old Testament, and you can see that God feels more strongly about some sins than other. For example, if you lie or if you steal, I mean, you pay back fourfold. But if you murder somebody, you get killed, right? There's obviously God has stronger reactions to some things than other, than other things. All sins equally cause separation from God, but not all sins are punished equally before God. And so here's what we see is that when you go back to the um, um, Old Testament, you can see there's some things that God takes very seriously. And God takes um, uh, anyone who enacts a census in the wrong way so seriously that he will inflict the entire nation with a plague. Does God take taking a census pretty seriously? We can go say, yeah, this is fairly important to God. This is not a, a small deal. And the reason that God is not going to let this pass is because he knows that this is a huge deal. God also knows this. Severe discipline from God changes the heart. Severe discipline from God has a profound effect on our soul, and it changes our heart so that we experience this. And for the rest of our lives, look back on that and say, I will never do that again. God just knows, and so God is not going to let this one go. But David's response, of course, is uh, he says to Gad in verse 14, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. His mercy is great, but, not, but let me not fall into the hand of man. God is going to do something, and he is going to enact a terrible piece of discipline on David. And David will never, ever, ever forget this. I want you to watch what happens. Verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time, which was three days. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. 70,000 men. So at this point, now, some of you should be saying, the God of the Bible is terrible. How could you worship a God who does that? I want to draw out a few things for you. Go back to the beginning. Who incited God to anger for, through willful disobedience? The nation. The nation of Israel. God enters into this situation. And, and I think some of us think that God is arbitrary and random, and he's like, ah, you and you and you and you and you. God is exact and specific and measured. 
And here's what I would put my bottom dollar on when you get to heaven. If you could meet every one of these 70,000 men, if you knew what God knew, you would say God handpicked every single man who died in this pestilence, and you would look and say, they deserved it. They broke the law, and they did what God said would lead to their death. Now, the problem is we don't know what they did. All we're left with is a decision. Will you trust God's discipline and goodness in this moment? I mean, there's some people, when, they, when we see that God um, disciplines them or does something hard to them, we say, oh, they deserve it, right? And there's some people we say, how could God do that to such a good person? But I guarantee you this, if you saw what God saw and knew what God knew, you would do exactly what God does in every single circumstance. And so I, w- I want to submit to you in this moment that God is not just being arbitrary and random, but specific and exact. And if, imagine if you're David, you don't know all this. You don't know about Satan. You don't know about all the stuff behind the scenes. All you see over three days is warriors, men that you have fought with and men who have given their best for you dying one after another after number until the total comes 70,000. I mean, these, these three days could not have been more devastating and terrible um, for David. I can't imagine what he had to go through. But here's what God, I think, was getting at. What was the thing that stood between David and God? It was David's pride and counting the numbers of men that he had. So what did, David, what did God rip from David? His men. He ripped the very source of pride that he had. He said, you know what? If, if this number, it's going to stand between me and you, I will rip it out of your life. I will make your life happily very difficult if that means I'm going to get back your heart. And let me tell you this. David is never going to forget this. David is never, ever, for the rest of his life, never, ever will he let his pride, his reliance on his armies, on his empire, on his money to get in the way of his relationship with God because it costs far too much. So not only did God get David's heart back, but he also executed right and just judgment on 70,000 people who incited him through willful disobedience to anger by breaking the law. I mean, God is a genius. The way he navigates all of this upholds his perfect justice and his perfect mercy is unbelievable. But this just keeps going. Part number three in your notes, I will have your heart despite my cost. Verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Now the parallel passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 21, I'm going to read you verse 16. I want you to hear what's happening. It's the same story, but a different perspective. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, And in his hand, a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. And then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. Isn't that amazing? So the elders and David, and they all stand back, and they see the angel of the Lord, and he is getting ready to execute the entire city of Jerusalem. Now, there's something really important that I'm guessing 98% of you missed. Um, And I want you to catch this, and I want you to listen carefully. The angel of the Lord comes up like 56 times, I believe, in Scripture. 51 times, uh, 51 different instances, but 56 different moments where that word comes up. And here's what I want you to understand. The angel of the Lord, in the Old Testament, declares himself as God and receives worship as God. So let me make it more clear. The angel of the Lord here is the pre-incarnate 
Jesus Christ, Son of God, sent out by God the Father to execute judgment because that's what he does. He judges the living and the dead. That the angel of the Lord here is not just some random arbitrary messenger, but it is actually the pre-incarnate, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ coming down to execute judgment. Now, Let's put this in different perspective, right? Your fluffy version of Jesus with blonde wavy hair and a robe. He's standing over the city of Jerusalem. He's already executed 70,000 people. And Jesus is getting ready to execute the entire city when God the Father says, stay your hand, it's enough. I was going to title this message, Does Your Jesus Kill People? (laughs) Right? But let's be honest. The judge of the living and the dead is Jesus Christ. And when you stand before him on the day of judgment, if your sins are not paid for, you will fear him greater than any fear you can possibly imagine. On the other hand, if you stand before him on the day of judgment and your sins are forgiven, you will see him as the most beautiful, glorious, uh, engaging, enticing, awesome uh, person you could possibly imagine and you will give him all of your worship and you will be completely satisfied in his presence. It's amazing. And so this Jesus is sitting there holding it, and David and the elders, they see this, and they get on their face, and they beg, will you, God, please hold back? This is too much. And the father enters in, and he holds back. Look at verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and he said, behold, I have sinned. Is David's heart broken? Absolutely. And I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? He has no idea because he doesn't know the hearts of men. He doesn't even know what incited God to anger yet nine months and 20 days before this. Please let your hand be against me and my father's house. Take me. I did this. This is is my fault. Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Take that name, Arana the Jebusite, the threshing floor. Put it in the margin of your mind. We'll come back in a little bit. So David went up at Gad's word. As the Lord commanded. So the Lord sends Jesus, the Father sends Jesus to execute his judgment. David is sacrificing animals, and God says, God says to, to David, Go to this floor, go to the threshing floor of Iran of the Jebusite. The threshing floor in Scripture becomes a metaphor for a place of judgment where hard things happen, where things are treaded and, and trampled on. And so this is a place of judgment metaphorically all throughout Scripture. And God says, um, David, I want you to go to this threshing floor and I want you to offer a sacrifice. And when you offer the sacrifice, I will avert the plague. Well, let's keep reading. Verse, go down to verse 25 with me. And David built there an altar to the Lord. And he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Now I want to read to you the parallel passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 21, verse 26. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offerings. And then the Lord commanded the angel. I love this picture And the angel put his sword back in his sheath. Isn't that a powerful, powerful picture? Now I want want to go back to something that's really important. Who is Uriah the Jebusite? Who cares about where he lives? Why is that important? I'm going to tell you. Because a thousand years before this, on this very location, here's what happened. God brought Abraham and his son Isaac to this place, which is also called Mount Moriah. And he takes Abraham and he says, I want you to kill your son. I want you to sacrifice him for me. Now, did God actually intend to let him do it? The answer, no. As he holds up the knife and is about to execute his son, God intervenes 
in that moment of wrath, and he provides a substitute. A thousand years later, God's wrath is being poured out. And God says, I want you to go to that place where Abraham offered up uh, Isaac and where the Lord provided a substitute. And do you know when David gets there, who's standing on the threshing floor of Uriah of the Jebusite? The angel of the Lord, Jesus himself. And as he sacrifices bulls and goats, the blood temporarily averts the wrath of God. It appeases him, and Jesus is standing there. This land was going to be given by David to his son Solomon to build the temple so that for generations and generations on this very spot, this would be the place where the blood of bulls and goats were shed so that the people could have uh, the, the wrath and anger of God averted for a time. But let's be honest for a moment. Did the blood of bulls and goats ever really appease fully the wrath of God? Ever? I mean, let's be honest. Do you think a blood of a goat could cover your sin against a holy God? And that was never the point. Jesus is standing there, and he understands full well the only reason this sacrifice that David is making has any efficacy in any way, shape, or form is because God is looking forward to the real, ultimate sacrifice that Jesus Christ will make on the cross as God the Father, instead of pouring his wrath on the people, pours it onto his son, just a stone's throw away from Mount Moriah. And this place goes back a thousand years and forward a thousand years. I mean, this is actually uh, an incredible passage of scripture where God, Jesus, is standing right near the place where he's going to have his own blood shed for your sins and for mine. I mean, that is awesome. And if you just miss this context, you miss the whole point of the story. You miss the whole point of what's going on. That there's something that stands between David and God, and he rips it out of his life in a way that he will never forget. And then he says, you know what? Someone's got to cover the cost of your sin, and temporarily gives a bull and a goat, but that's not really where it comes down to it. The reality is this, is that David needed his sins paid for by God himself. Because David couldn't pay for his sins. Bulls and goats couldn't pay for his sins. His good works couldn't pay for his sins. All of his empire and kingdom building wasn't enough to make God say, I'll overlook your sin. And, and, and here's this beautiful principle I just want to bring home for you. You have two options, everyone in this room. You will either pay for your sins or Jesus will pay for them. You take your pick. A thousand times over, I would much rather have all of the weight of God's righteous and just anger and my own willful disobedience put on Jesus than have to stand under the weight of that on my own in hell. And so Jesus, I love this, stands there and God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit commiserate in eternity past. And they say there's a massive problem coming because they are rebellious. They are sinful to their core. They will reject you. And you cannot just overlook it because that's outside of your character. And God says, I'll send my son. Jesus says, I'll go. And he bears the full weight. And then he looks at all people everywhere and he says, here's the deal. You're not allowed to work for this. You're not allowed to try to get this forgiveness by being good. All you can do is come to me and say, I have nothing. I have nothing. And you can receive it. That's it. That's it. I have nothing. I'm a sinner, and you are holy, and I believe you. Save me. That's all you got. And God's promise is simple. If you will come to him on his terms, and you will just simply confess and believe. That's it. Just believe. Trust. Have faith. His promise is this. I'll forgive you. I'll give you my Holy Spirit. I'll redeem you. You will mess up over and over and over again, but I will never stop loving you. I will reform you. I will renew you. I will transform you. I will eradicate everything in your life that stands between me and you. And that day comes, and that day comes where you look, you close your eyes for the last time, and you wake up, and you see me. You will see grace, 
and you will see mercy, you will see kindness, you will see joy, and you will never, ever, 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 ever want to be anywhere else. And so I would contend with you, submit to you, don't reject Jesus. Come to him. Because you will never stand. But he loves you so much that he paid the price for you. Isn't that amazing? So as we close this out, I want to share with you one simple prayer request that I have. My desire for you as you read passages like this, as hard as it is to see, that you would see the gospel in this, something bigger. This is about man's rebellion and God's holiness. But the fact that God loves you so much that he pays the price for your own sin at incredible cost to himself. And that as we respond to this, what better way to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ told over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament and New Testament than worship and gratitude, right? And so we're gonna sing right now. I wanna ask the band if you guys would come up. We're gonna worship and we're gonna sing about God's amazing grace. You know what's amazing about it? Is that you deserve hell and you got mercy. That's mind-blowing. So let's pray together and worship. Father, in behalf of every son and daughter of God in this room, uh, we believe that we are sinners. Your word tells us that because of our sin, we are separated from you and deserve hell. God, I thank you that that is not our destiny. I thank you that it is unnecessary. I thank you that you didn't just step back and walk away from us because we had rejected you, but you became flesh in Jesus. I thank you that the full weight of your your anger at our sin was poured out on Jesus. I thank you that you rose him from the dead, proving that the payment had been accepted. And I thank you that there aren't hoops we have to jump through. You say, just come to me and trust. And so God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would well up joy and gratitude for what you've done for us in Jesus, despite ourselves. We pray all this and we worship you in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen.